May I speak to you in the name of our one holy and triune God. Amen. Please be seated. As many of you know, I met my wife, Marcella, at Yale Divinity School when we were both graduate students. Marcella was in the Master of Divinity program, a degree which is geared towards people who will go on to be in active ministry. And I was getting my Master's in Religious Ethics, a degree geared towards people who would likely go on to pursue a PhD in Ethics. Because Marcella was also in Berkeley, the Episcopal Seminary at Yale, she had a set course schedule to follow. I know both Marissa, who might be watching, and Linda know the course rubric very well, too. So unsurprisingly, right, Marcella is now a priest. She took courses in liturgy, in the history of the Episcopal Church, in preaching, and in pastoral care. While I was taking courses in the ethics of the Old Testament, human dignity, the ethics of social change and moral revolution, and my favorite, the ethics of Thomas Aquinas. And so while I was loving the flexibility of, for the requirements of my program, choosing, of course, all ethics and theology courses, there were some courses that Marcella had to take that she hated. And I mean hated. If she wanted to become a priest, the rubric mandated that in addition to her courses in preaching and pastoral care, that she also take patristics, a course that centered on the teachings of the early church and the controversies that surrounded them. And she was also required to take ethics. I'm not sure which one she hated more, which of course was ironic because she had just started dating an ethicist. Please do laugh at that. It was, it was a hilarious time in our relationship. Okay. <laughs> I remember one particular evening when we had been dating for only a few months. She was studying for an ethics exam using flashcards. And on one side of the card, she had written the name of an important theologian. On the other side was their most essential teachings and important insights. And I offered to quiz her on them. So I took the deck and was holding up the name of the theologian so she could see it while reading what was on the back to confirm that she was getting it right. And we get to Thomas Aquinas. I held up the card and said, Marcella, this card is blank. And she said, I know, if he comes up on the exam, I just won't answer that question. And I was devastated, for those who know, I love Thomas Aquinas. And I said, I mean, how could you not like Thomas Aquinas? Now, in Marcella's defense, okay, Aquinas is not an easy read. And her classes in ethics and patristics were really hard. She went on to lament how all of the teachings from the early church, like Aquinas, were useless to her. Patristics, ethics, how would these be actually useful for her life in ministry? 
How would these be important for her life as a priest? Well, from that moment on, I somehow made it my personal goal to make her fall in love with these subjects. And now that's my goal for you today, too. (laughs) So bear with me as I take you into these courses that my wife hated and I loved in an attempt to demonstrate why they're actually really relevant for our lives as Christians today. So first, patristics. Any course, you can't be bored already, by the way. You have to be, okay. Any course in patristics will run through the writings of the men who are known as the fathers of the church. It is the men who were writing right after the New Testament times or what we call the apostolic age. In a course in patristics, you read theologians like Justin Martyr, Athanasius, Tertullian, Augustine, Ambrose, Gregory the Great, and John Chrysostom. All theologians, again, who were writing right after the life and death and resurrection of Christ. We believe that Christ died around 33 A.D., Paul and his apostles were doing their thing, that's the accurate term, from about three, again, you got it, okay, 300 to 100 AD, and the church fathers came onto the scene trying to then make sense of it all. And they really struggled with trying to make sense of who Jesus actually was. I would venture to say that the thing they struggled with the most was the humanity and divinity of Jesus. How could, they asked, Jesus be both human and divine? Was Jesus God? Just another human? Maybe just human or just divine or some other third thing? These were the questions that haunted those early theologians. And so as far as I'm concerned, patristics is really just a course about how our early Christian siblings were trying to wrap their heads around who Jesus actually was. While Jesus was dying, the Roman centurion said to him, said, truly, this is the Son of God. And yet, he said that right after Jesus had just gone through excruciating pain. And suffering. Was Jesus human or God or both? Along the way, there were people who called themselves Arians. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God, but not as divine as God the Father. They thought Jesus was more human than he was God. But that doesn't seem quite right, does it? Along the way, there were people who called themselves docetists or docetists, who believed that God never took on human flesh and that the body of Jesus was just an illusion. They thought Jesus never physically died on the cross. Maybe it was a magic trick. But that doesn't seem quite right either, does it? There was yet another group of early Christians who called themselves Nestorians, 
They believed that Jesus was human and Jesus was divine, but that they were somehow separate. So the human Jesus wasn't really God, and God wasn't really human. But that doesn't seem quite right either, does it? And so A Course in Patristics is really just about the 350-some-odd years of this back and forth, of the early Christians getting some things right and a lot of things wrong about the humanity and divinity of Jesus. They were just trying to wrap their heads around who he really was. And in 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, the official definition was offered after 350 years of fights. They came to a conclusion. Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. Not one, both. Fully human, fully divine. The quote from the actual text that they wrote is that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So now you've all taken a course in patristics. (laughs) There you go. You're welcome. (laughs) So what's the point? Why is any of this relevant to us now? The point is that for thousands of years of Christian history, we've struggled to wrap our heads around the fact that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Not one, not the other, both at the same time. Fully human and fully divine, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And I think of the two, Jesus' full humanity, of, between the two of Jesus' full humanity and full divinity, the one we always seem to struggle with more is his full humanity. At least I do. In today's gospel, we see the humanity of Jesus on full display. As Matthew describes him, Jesus is famished after 40 days of fasting. He's hungry. He's physically exhausted. He is alone, friendless. And in that state of vulnerability, the devil comes and basically says, So you say you're God? Prove it. Leave the condition of your humanity. Put an end to the physical exhaustion, the hunger, the loneliness. So you say you're God? Well, if you're fully God, stop being fully human. Each temptation is inviting Jesus to leave the human condition. But he doesn't. Maybe he can't. Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. Both. Without confusion. Without change. Without division. Without separation. 
Now we go back to the Thomas Aquinas flashcard. Although Thomas was writing in the medieval period, he still has all the same questions about the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus. In his most well-known text, I'm pretty sure I brought in my entire copy one time here, in his most well-known text, which is the Summa, Aquinas asks, and this I quote, if Christ is exemplary in his humanity, if he is perfect in his humanity, did God assume human defects when God became human? Did God assume human defects when God became human? And I love his answer to his own well-phrased question. He says, Christ took on corporeal vulnerability and emotional limitation and suffering. Corporeal vulnerability and emotional limitation and suffering. In other words, Christ physically suffered and experienced human emotions. Jesus' human body was not an illusion, not some magic trick. Jesus' divinity was not separate from his humanity. Fully human, fully divine, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Now, if you take anything from this sermon, please don't let it be the, quote, <clears throat> sermon where Meg tried to prove her wife is wrong and claim that patristic theology and Thomas Aquinas are actually really relevant to ministry. <clears throat> Though that might be a little bit of what this sermon is about. I preached this to my wife last night. <laughs> but my real hope here, why I've dragged you through Nestorianism and Docetism and Arianism and the Chalcedon definition of Jesus is not just to teach you some fun, fancy new words, but because honestly, I have a lot of empathy for the time in our church's history where we struggled with the humanity of Jesus, because we're still struggling with it today. I'm still struggling with it today. Sometimes I want Christ to be human, but not too human. The fact that Christ hungered, felt pain, suffered, wept, it's too much to bear. But we have this gospel text at the beginning of our Lenten journey for a reason. It's to serve as a reminder that God physically suffered and experienced human emotions. God physically suffered and experienced human emotions. Fully human, fully divine, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Lent is a time for us to grapple with the messiness of humanity, both Jesus's and our own. We begin on Ash Wednesday acknowledging via the imposition of ashes that we will surely die, that our bodies will fail us. And throughout Lent, we wrestle with our own desires, face our own emptiness, confront our pain, acknowledge our suffering, and affirm our finitude, 
affirm the most difficult aspects of human existence. As it was for Jesus, Lent is a time to become more fully human. I'll end with this. Thomas Aquinas also asks, why would God want to do such a thing as to take on the reality of what it means to be human? Why would God want to become human? Of all of his answers, this is the one that I love the most. God became human, he says, because it shows us that life is livable in the midst of suffering. It shows us that life is livable in the midst of suffering. That in the midst of our strange desires, our emptiness, our pain, our suffering, God is with us. The tragedy of human existence becomes the beauty of the incarnation. My invitation for all of us this Lent is to experience our own humanity, as hard and difficult and painful as that can be, because our tradition reminds us that there is divinity in humanity. That's the relevance of the patristics and of Thomas. Fully human, fully divine, without confusion, without change without division, without separation. Amen.